So today is the 19th of August, 2021. We've come together chanting the praises of the Lord Buddha. And we recollect the wisdom of the Buddha, which is a, a great wisdom able to achieve victory over the defilements, the kilesas. This is something the Buddha was able to do on his own. Who's the only one in the world uh, capable of doing this, capable of having the, the only one who had the wisdom to achieve victory over the defilements. Because no one else in the world uh, knew the way to overcome the defilements. No one else had the wisdom uh, sufficient to find the way on their own. At the Buddhist time, there were many individuals with a high level of samadhi, mental unification. But this samadhi, they thought that it was uh, freedom, thought it was freedom from the defilements. Uh, so they didn't understand that this samadhi wasn't yet the unconditioned, wasn't yet nibbana, because the happiness and freedom of these very high and exalted states of samadhi, it can feel close to having no defilement, but it's still not uh, the unconditioned, it's still not Nibbana. And the Lord Buddha, before his awakening, or in order to realize awakening, contemplated uh, ignorance, avijja, as the cause for sankara's uh, conditioned formations to arise which then leads to uh, consciousness, uh, name and form, to feeling tone, to craving, to attachment, uh, to uh, becoming, to birth, to sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair, and death, and suffering. So we saw that ignorance is the cause, and then this causal process uh, goes on through these various steps like condition formations, uh, consciousness, name and form, feeling tone, attachment, all the way up to birth and then suffering. So this is the chain of causation. And the Buddha compared this, made a simile, comparing this to uh, the builders of uh, buildings. So we know that to build various types of buildings, one needs a builder, uh, such as the houses that we live in and so on. And the builder has to have uh, intelligence and skill to build these uh, houses and dwellings. So the Buddha compared this to ignorance, uh, craving and attachment. So that ignorance, craving and attachment are the builders, the builders of uh, our life, the builders of our multiple lifetimes, the builders of life's lives for the mind, for the jitta. So ignorance, craving, and attachment uh, builds lifetimes for the mind. And the mind with uh, ignorance, craving, and attachment sometimes does merit, sometimes does demerit by body, speech, or mind. And this will affect the uh, the quality or the type of house, the type of birth that is built. 
So therefore one tries to practice generosity and virtue and has wisdom to understand uh, this process. Because when one uh, practices generosity and virtue and has wisdom, this is comparable to building a house that's more beautiful. So one's house becomes more attractive and beautiful. But then that house passes away and then ignorance uh, builds another house again. So the Buddha in his first exclamation uh, commented, commented on this, that he had seen the house builder and the house builder would not build another home, but all the rafters had been snapped and the, the main ridge pole was dismantled. And he said the non-constructing mind has come to craving's end. So with ignorance being destroyed, then the builder uh, isn't there to build any more houses. And with this uh, pillar, the pillar gone, which is uh, ignorance, then there can't be any more building of houses. The house can't exist. And this is the end of suffering uh, with no more ignorance. So the Buddha had this very sharp, incisive wisdom to see this clearly just something that no one else was capable of doing. No one else knew the way to overcome suffering like this. So with the destruction of ignorance, craving, and attachment in the mind of the Buddha, a great purity arose in the mind of the Buddha. So this is the Buddha eliminating the defilements uh, from his heart and finding the way and understanding the way to destroy the defilements. So this is something the Buddha has taught us already, something that no one else knew, no one else was capable of understanding. And we can uh, look to the story of Venerable Subhadda, the last uh, disciple to awaken during the lifetime of the Buddha, uh, Pachima Sawaka. So when he came up to the Lord Buddha, um, he asked, are the paths and fruits of liberation, do they exist in other uh, teaching systems or do they only exist within the Buddha's teaching? And the Buddha answered that for the paths and fruits of liberation to arise, one needs the Noble Eightfold Path. Outside of the Noble Eightfold Path, there are no paths and fruits of liberation of Nibbana. So it's not possible to overcome suffering through other teaching systems. It's only through the Noble Eightfold Path that one can overcome suffering. And the Buddha compared it to uh, footprints. One can make footprints in the sand or on the earth and so on, but can one make footprints in the air? We see birds fly through the air and so on, and it's not possible to make footprints in the air. So in the same way that there's no footprints in the air, there's no paths or fruits of liberation outside of the Noble Eightfold Path. So we see that this way to overcome suffering through right view, um, correct view, it is the supreme, the best way that the Buddha has taught already. 
that the Buddha has taught already. So we have incredible good fortune to be born at this time, uh, 2,564 years after the Buddha's Parinibbana, the Buddha's passing away. And so we see that the Buddha awakened when he was uh, 35 years old, and then he lived to the age of uh, 80. So we can uh, calculate that the Buddha was awakened 2,609 years ago. So we have this incredible good fortune that the way to overcome suffering is still here, still being taught. So therefore it's possible to practice and see the Buddha for ourselves, to see the Dhamma. And upon seeing the Dhamma, one becomes a Buddha, uh, oneself, a Savaka Buddha. Just like the great uh, teachers whose teachings we have become Savaka Buddhas, and we call them Buddhas all the same. So therefore, in the present time, it's possible to realize Buddhahood, Savaka Buddhahood, and one realizes freedom from kilesa, uh, the destruction of the defilements, uh, just the same as all other Buddhas. So this is something of incredible value. Whatever there is of value in the world, nothing compares to the value of the Dhamma. And if no one knew this path to freedom, then all beings would be uh, utterly lost in this world because ignorance, craving, and attachment just continually build houses uh, for all the beings. So in the world, it would be nothing but birth and death, birth and death, uh, building of houses, the destruction and passing away of those houses uh, with death, and then building of new houses. So we see this a lot, uh, happens all over the world. Upon death, ignorance, craving, and attachment simply uh, carry the mind, take the mind to build a new life, to build a new house. With merit, one builds a good life. With demerit, one builds a uh, painful uh, or torturous existence. We can reflect that as a human being, we have this much suffering, have suffering to this degree. So how much suffering must there be in the realms lower than the human realm? the realms of the animals, the hungry ghosts, the asuras, uh, the hell beings. How much suffering must there be in those realms? Therefore, we should practice uh, making merit a lot, try to build a lot of merit to realize the state of a heavenly being, of a deva in one's own heart. We can ask, is this something we're able to do? And yes, we're all able to do this when we have a sincere intent and we have faith. We do walking, sitting meditation, practice to have mindfulness throughout the day. This is the way of Dhamma practice. This is the way to overcome suffering, to have mindfulness, to have collectedness. And when we sit, we may become sleepy and drowsy. So one can press one's tongue firmly on the roof of one's mouth and practice to overcome the sleepiness. 
And when the mind becomes peaceful, we may have no interest in the body anymore at that point. Sometimes the body relaxes and the mind can let go of the body and be very much at ease. Sometimes uh, there's, one may hear of a, perhaps a child, there's a story of a child sitting in meditation and uh, falling asleep, but it's actually the, the mind of this individual leaving their body. And just like uh, some of the great teachers, uh, this individual with their mind leaving their body, they could travel about and know many t different things. And sometimes one may get the feeling that one wants to lie down, and then upon lying down, the mind uh, exits the body. So this is uh, something that can happen with samadhi, but it's not true for all people. Because in the world, there are many beings without samadhi and very few that have samadhi. So if there's a lack of samadhi, then you can open your eyes or try walking, try to get enough rest, but don't rest too much. For Dhamma practitioners or monastics, for instance, a total of six hours of sleep uh, should be enough. One shouldn't do more than that. For instance, sleeping from 10 p.m. till 3 a.m. during the night then having a 45-minute or one-hour nap during the day, uh, that should be enough. Because if one rests a lot, then when one wakes up, one can feel confused and a bit delirious and this is because the hindrances have uh, come in and occupied the mind at that point because the mindfulness in samadhi isn't continuous. So therefore one should be careful uh, before one lies down to rest to establish mindfulness well. And when one wakes up to reestablish mindfulness at the same place as before one before one went to sleep. So reestablish mindfulness in the same point. In this way, one builds mindfulness to the point of being continuous. And it's also possible when lying down to enter samadhi, to enter states of absorption, even the states of jhana uh, during rest. So this is possible. This is making merit uh, during rest. And then when one awakens from that, one continues to be mindful, establishes continuity of mindfulness. So during the day, try to have mindfulness continuously because we see that uh, ignorance is constantly building dwellings, building houses. Whenever any of the six sense uh, bases contact their respective objects, so when this contact happens, whether through the eye, the ear, the nose, uh, the tongue, the body, the mind, and so on, liking arises, disliking arises. So try to establish mindfulness to know these phenomena as they arise, and then one's able to let go. And teach the mind that these are un something that's unsure, it's uncertain, unstable. Sometimes you may like a person a lot, 
You may really like someone and teach the mind. It's unsure, it's uncertain. One may dislike someone a lot and teach, oh, it's unsure, it's uncertain. So teach the mind like this. One may like a certain food a lot and teach the mind it's unsure, it's uncertain. And you can reflect, well, if you eat that food every single day, that feeling of liking can change, can even turn into disliking. It's because these feelings of liking and disliking are based in the proliferation of the mind. So it's like this. So through the teachings of the Buddha and this Dhamma practice, one can realize freedom from this proliferation, the destruction of the proliferation, which is realizing a state of no rebirth, no becoming. So again, it's 2,609 years since the Lord Buddha realized awakening. So we have great merit, great good fortune to meet with this path of uh, Dhamma, this path to realize true freedom, to realize purity of the mind. If we didn't have this way to realize freedom, what would we do? Well, we'd probably build some merit, do some generosity, even can do some concentration practice but contemplating the body as impermanent suffering and not self, we wouldn't be able to do this. No one would know about this. And without contemplating the body as anicca, dukkha, anatta, then the sense of self wouldn't uh, be overcome. The sense of self would still be there. And therefore one would be incapable of realizing freedom from suffering. And so we see that the root of all suffering is this, these roots of greed, uh, the root of aversion, the root of delusion. So therefore we must practice to uproot these uh, roots of all defilement, roots of all kilesa. This is something we must do in this very life to train our minds to this point, to have effort and diligence and a strictness in our chanting, in our meditation practice, because something, or this chanting and diligent effort in one's meditation, this is something that's very hard to find in this life. So one can ask, well, in what lifetime will I be able to find this way of practice again? Because one has had the very good fortune to meet with this path of practice, and so one should reflect, well, when will I meet with this again? It's unsure. So I've seen uh, people who practiced before, maybe 17 or 18 years, and they've done some Dhamma practice, realized some stillness, some emptiness of mind, some coolness of heart, and maybe had various uh, images arise in the mind. But then sometimes the images are not able to arise in the mind. For instance, one may recall the Buddha and want to visualize the Buddha as big or small and so on, but one can't do it. 
That's because one's samadhi is not to a sufficient level. And sometimes uh, an individual may simply throw out their practice at that point, not be interested anymore. And when they come to practice again, their mind is very agitated and disturbed. This is because the mind has been following the sense impressions and moods, which leads to a lot of chaos and heat in the heart. So one can practice recollecting the samadhi, the peace and collectedness that one's had in the past, the peacefulness that one's experienced before. One can practice uh, like this. For instance, one may practice observing the in and out breathing and look at the breath during the morning when the weather is good and the mind can realize some emptiness, some peace and samadhi which can uh, control the mind to a degree, not to chase after moods and sense impressions. So sometimes one's able to do this and then to, but then if one does this and then one simply lets go of the mind, then the kilesas uh, are still present and they can re-arise with strength and cover over the mind. So may you uh, practice with sincerity, study the Dhamma with sincerity. When you meditate, sometimes the mind is peaceful, sometimes it's not. Sometimes it can take uh, an hour or so for the mind to gather into samadhi. So when practices sitting meditation in the morning, sitting in the middle of the day, and then sitting in the evening, in this evening period, one may find one has more time than other periods of the day, especially if one is practicing the eight precepts. One can have a lot of time to meditate in the evening. So may you bring your mind to collectedness and peace, and your body can feel at ease and cool. The mind can be gathered in peacefulness and dispel the fatigue and weariness of the day. Even if one is tired from work, working throughout the whole day, in the evening if one has some samadhi, all that tiredness can be dispelled. The brain can become clear and clean. So this is a fruit of samadhi, a fruit of meditation practice. And the more one practices, the more one can get a deep sense or a deep feeling of the great virtues of the Lord Buddha. One can get a, a deep feeling of the Dhamma in one's heart. And during the day we see uh, old people, sick people, people dying. We contemplate all of this as Dhamma. For ourselves, when our body gets sick, we may think, uh, well, wh why am I sick? Why did I get sick? I don't want to be sick. I don't I want this experience of feeling ill and uh, diseased. In the present time with the COVID virus, uh, we see no one wants to get this virus. No one wants this pain and difficulty in one's experience. But one can ask, well, is this something that anyone is capable of achieving? 
And the answer is no, no one is able to realize freedom from sickness. So we can ask, well, why is the mind clinging to something that's impossible to achieve? Why is it clinging to things that are inevitably aging and getting sick and dying? Why is it clinging to them as self and me? If one knows that one can't control it, one can't uh, prevent sickness, old age, and death, why cling to it as self? Because no one wants these experiences of old age, sickness, and death. So why cling to it as a me, as a mine? None of it can last. And it, when we cling in this way, it brings nothing but suffering to the mind. So therefore we practice to see that all of this, all these uh, ever-changing phenomena are suffering. Really, there's no happiness, there's no true happiness and pleasure to be found in them. So all the things we like in the world, uh, its nature is just that way, to be impermanent, to be uh, stressful by nature. Whatever it is we really enjoy or like, that is its nature. The things of the world don't announce themselves as I'm beautiful, I'm attractive. Uh, the things of the world don't say that, but it's the mind that applies these values to uh, sense experience. And if one's able to bring the mind to peace and stillness and to s subdue proliferation in the mind, then one sees that really there's nothing there at all. Even if one has a very big house, a very uh, pleasant, uh, large uh, personal dwelling, and one sees that that's really just a feeling. When the mind is brought to stillness, then there's nothing there. Whether it's a Wihara or Uposita hall, large meditation hall, without proliferation, there's really nothing there. There's no me or mine. There's no self there. And when the mind is peaceful and empty, collected in samadhi, even if there's other people around, we may feel that we're sitting all alone. This is bringing the mind to peace in order to develop wisdom. So this is a way of Dhamma practice. And the Dhamma practice gets deeper and deeper uh, in this way. So in the beginning when one may not have had faith, but then the faith arises to practice generosity and virtue. One sees the value of having virtue, the drawbacks of not having virtue, and therefore one is, sets one's heart to practice virtue, to establish oneself in sila. Then one sees the value of samadhi, of collectedness, the value of listening to the Dhamma. This listening to the Dhamma helps us to understand the Dhamma more deeply. It's able to dispel any doubts that we may have. Those things which we previously did not understand, we can understand them clearly. And listening to the Dhamma can bring joy, clarity, brightness to the mind. 
And we see the Dhamma bit by bit when we listen to the Dhamma. In the past, there'd be great teachers uh, going to give a talk in Bangkok, for instance, and I would go to listen. This is something that would be difficult to find, difficult to come by. Even a recorded tape, a tape recording of a Dhamma talk could be very difficult to find. It's uh, difficult to get that chance, that opportunity. But in the present day, we see that there are a lot of Dhamma talks available and it's not very difficult at all to be able to listen to Dhamma and all the various great teachers, their Dhamma talks are available for us to listen to quite easily nowadays. Therefore, may you be intent in your study of Dhamma and your listening to Dhamma and then faith and belief can increase, which will lead to the practice of the Dhamma, which will lead to collectedness and peace arising in the mind, which leads to seeing the Dhamma. Then one starts to understand the Dhamma uh, one bit at a time. In the beginning, it's not enough to destroy the houses built by ignorance, because this... uh, Proliferation in the mind, proliferation as self, as me and mine, has a lot of power, the power of ignorance, the power of uh, craving, the power of attachment behind it. So therefore we have happiness and suffering, uh, pain and pleasure arise, liking and disliking arise in our experience. So therefore we try to have a lot of mindfulness with the experience of the six senses. So if one has a feeling tone, pain, pleasure, or neutral arise, one has liking or disliking arise, uh, continuously try to contemplate and teach the mind that these things are unsure, they're uncertain. The mind sees them as very much a sure thing, but one makes the effort to teach the mind that they're not sure, they're not stable, they're not certain. And when the mind is taught in this way, one can realize a great degree of ease, uh, ease of being. So this wisdom, we use this wisdom to teach the mind in order to see the Dhamma. There's no need to doubt about this. There's no need to do any other practice practice in this way, practice to bring the mind to collectedness and teach the mind like this, teach the mind that all these phenomena are uncertain, they're unstable. And and then in no long time, one can see the Dhamma clearly for oneself. And this, this is the point of change, the point of changing one's life when one sees the Dhamma like this. One sees all phenomena as impermanent suffering and not self. And at this point, one sees the Dhamma, which we say one also sees the Buddha. And when one sees the Dhamma in this way, this is the noble Sangha arising in one's own heart. 
and one's interest in the Dhamma is great. And at this point, one, one's mind wants this emptiness, this purity, this uh, rapture and happiness uh, more than anything else. Uh, or this rapture and happiness is greater than any other happiness or rapture that's possible to experience. This freedom from clinging, this clear seeing, the seeing of the Dhamma. And this is something that happens of its own accord, this entering of the path. Pucha compared it to a stream that runs from a mountain down to the ocean. If one drops a piece of wood or a stick into that stream and that stick doesn't go too much to the left or too much to the right, and just keeps uh, going with the flow of the water, eventually it'll reach the ocean. So in the same way, going left is, uh, or going left or right, is going too much in the path of uh, indulging in sensual pleasures, and the other way is indulging too much in self-mortification. So avoiding these two extremes, then one reaches the ocean eventually for sure. So therefore, if one keeps practicing this path of virtue, collectedness, and wisdom, one will see the Dhamma for certain. So may you set your hearts on this, to realize this in this very lifetime. Because we have this incredible good fortune over 2,600 years after the Buddha's awakening, where the Buddha succeeded to become a fully self-awakened Buddha, and then the Buddha's passing into Parinibbana 2,564 years ago, where we still have the way to overcome suffering in the present day. The Buddha taught this way and it has reached all the way up to the present. So if we keep practicing, one day we'll be able to see the Buddha for ourselves. We may see Buddha statues made of wood, made of gold, made of metal or clay and so on. These statues serve the purpose of helping us to recollect the virtues of the Buddha, the great purity, great wisdom, and great compassion of the Lord Buddha. This helps us, helps us to understand more clearly. We recollect these qualities and rapture arises in the mind our mind inclines and brings these qualities uh, into the heart to recollect and rapture can arise easily. We can chant and realize stillness and then this rapture and happiness arises. We can understand uh, truly into the Dhamma of the Buddha. And this is all coming from the Buddha's teachings if it weren't for the Buddha realizing self-awakening and teaching this path to overcome suffering, we would be completely lost in this cycle of birth and death, constantly being born and dying, born and dying. We don't know how many eons or how many kalpas this would go on for. But in this lifetime, we've met with the Dhamma. We've met with the path to overcome suffering. 
So we were able to see the Dhamma in this very lifetime. The Dhamma is still present in the world and we are able to see it. And the seeing of the Dhamma brings great rapture, fullness of heart and joy. So therefore may you have effort in your Dhamma practice. Don't give up, don't retreat. We have this incredible good fortune in this lifetime. And so uh, put forth effort and engage uh, sincerely in this Dhamma practice. And even if one's not ordained as a monastic, for the lady, the lady have incredible merit and good fortune as well. So may you practice Dhamma as an important uh, point in your life because this inner wealth of the heart is of great importance. This wealth of faith, this wealth of effort, of mindfulness, collectedness, and wisdom. This is a noble wealth, the very best wealth, that which is of the most value above all else. So even if one has uh, all the wealth of the world, all types of outer wealth, uh, one can consider that it would be very heavy to carry around all that wealth. Then in the end, when one dies, one throws it away all the same. However, this inner wealth is capable of bringing us to freedom from suffering. So may we cultivate <clears throat> and build this inner wealth to a great degree. Use wisdom to teach the mind to see all materiality and mentality <clears throat> as impermanent suffering and not self whether it's liking arising or disliking arising, uh, contemplate a lot, and then you'll be able to meet with true happiness in this very life.